You're listening to K-Squid, Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. Many voices, community radio. This is Story Behind the Story. I'm your host, Clara Shirley Appel, and my guest today is author and environmental lawyer Rishi Reddy. Reddy came to prominence as a writer in the early 2000s. Her short fiction has earned her a Penn Award as well as a nomination for the Pushcart Prize, and her story, Justice Shiva Ramurti, appeared in the 2005 edition of the Best American Short Stories. It was also featured on NPR's Selected Shorts. Her debut novel, Passage West, came out last month and it is the topic of our conversation today. Rishi Reddy, welcome to Story Behind the Story. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very happy to be here. Well, I'm thrilled that you're here. I read this book back in November and just loved it. You have been writing fiction professionally for decades now. Can you just tell me a little bit about how you got into that and what it is about writing and about fiction in particular that captures your interest? Yeah, I have always been a writer ever since I was a child, and I couldn't give it up even though I took on the very practical day job of being a lawyer. And I um, went back to school and uh, got a degree in creative writing. And um, it is the part of me where I feel like I can say things that I can't say anywhere else in my life. And um, so that's why I've kept with it, even though, you know, there's been all of life events going on, children, the day job, everything else. It's the thing that feeds the soul, I think. Yeah, I think... uh... A lot of artists would say that art or writing isn't optional. I agree completely. <laughs> well, in addition to being a writer, as, as we mentioned, you're also a practicing lawyer. How does your work as a lawyer affect your writing? It affects it quite a bit. In fact, um, the source for Passage West came out of uh, a case that we were studying in law school very, very long ago. Hmm. Um, but the concept of it stayed with me throughout. It was uh, about the first Uh, South Asian American who had uh, obtained citizenship. He was actually not the first, but what happened with him is that uh, after he had served as a soldier in World War I, he had obtained a citizenship based on that service. The INS, way back in the early 1920s, appealed to that, and the Supreme Court subsequently rescinded his citizenship. And then all of the other South Asians who had been citizens of the U.S. up until that time Um, were similarly revoked of their citizenship, and they became stateless people. So um, this had stayed with me sort of throughout my early practicing years, and it had been a novel that I'd wanted to write for a very long time. And I feel that almost all of my writing is uh, influenced by either environmental work, that environmental perspective, or a legal understanding. Um, I can't seem to separate the two completely. Well, and this is uh, United States versus Tind that you're talking about, right? It is. But there are, of course, several other legal precedents that are involved in this book and that sort of come up. Can you talk about some of those? Yes. I mean, when I went back and I started doing the research on Thind and really teaching myself about what had happened during those years, that's when I came across a number of other things that were going on in California at the time. The miscegenation laws that uh, requ- would not allow people of two races, however that was categorized, to marry. Um, And then in the uh, 19-teens and 1920s, the alien land laws, which basically said that if a person was of a race ineligible for citizenship in the U.S., uh, because that was how the Supreme Court was categorizing eligibility at the time, if they were of one of those ineligible races, then they could not either lease or own land either. So Many of the Japanese, the South Asians, many other 
um, ethnic groups that had uh, leased or purchased land in uh, California in those days had to let go of their lease holdings and they were no longer able to uh, practice their livelihood as farmers. So this was all really fascinating to me. Yeah. As being an immigrant that had entered the country um, as a young child in 1971. And we had, my family had entered in that wave of immigrants that had come in after 1965. This, in 1965, immigration laws were loosened again, and many people came in from Asia during that time. Um, but we were not really aware of all of the folks who had come much earlier, you know, in the 19-teens and earlier even. And so there was a sort of arrogance about the way that we conducted ourselves in the U.S. at that time. Mm. And it was only after I'd done all this research that I realized, like, wow, these people had come, you know, two and a half generations before us. They faced many of the same things in a much more restrictive society. Um, Institutions were really against them and explicitly so, which may not have been the case when we entered in the 1970s. Well, and in Passage West, the sort of main character is this guy, Ram, a Punjabi immigrant living in California and working the land in the 1910s. And one of the things that I sort of discovered through your work and through the research I was doing around it to prepare for this interview is that there was a a pretty sizable population of people from the Punjab region in India who came to California and the Pacific Northwest during that time. Um, There were huge political movements, huge changes to the agricultural system in California, especially in the types of crops that people grew. And yet this history is not really taught in schools and is uh, not something that is easy to, it's, it's something that it's easy to find, but it's not something that you're going to necessarily get if you're not looking for it in other places. So I just kind of was curious what drew you to this time and place? What drew you to this setting? And why was it important to you to talk about this this part of history that has been a little bit buried? Yeah, it, I realized as I researched it more and more that the, the process of the researching actually helped me in my immigration journey, mm-hmm. that I felt that all of these folks who had been here from so long ago, um, who helped build uh, the America that we know, who participated in World War I, either as soldiers or growing the crops that were needed at that time. They helped build the country that we know now. That helped me feel more American. Um, it was it was uh, a journey that I went through, you know, as I had children and as I became more and more settled in this country that I was like, yes, you know, this place is mine too. And look, other folks had come from uh, South Asia and made it theirs much earlier. And then the other thing that happened is, is that I got in touch in the course of my research with a number of children of these descendants. Mm-hmm. And many of these families were made up of Punjabi fathers and Mexican mothers. And they had children who, at the time that I started interviewing them, were probably in their 60s and 70s. And it was really a great experience to talk with these folks and learn the stories about their families and the way that they negotiated these bicultural families the way that they grew up and had to, you know, they were much older than me at the time that the interviews had first started and to realize that they had already fought those same battles that I had, that I had gone through both internally and emotionally as well as externally. So the process of writing the book was a very personal journey. And, you know, there's that old saying that we write what we need and, Mm. and I think this definitely fit into that. So, Because I didn't really give you a chance to set it up, maybe I can ask you to do that now and and 
say a little bit about what the book is and what story it's telling in your own words. Well, the book is, it's in one sense, very broad societally about what's going on in the U.S. at that time and what's particular to the South Asian immigrants at that time. So um, some of what, it, of what that entailed was their status as British citizens, um, because this wasn't the era when it was still about 25 years before Britain was going to leave India. So they mm. were subjects of the Commonwealth. And there was a, a large group of folks who were in the U.S. who were um, uh, engaged in that political activity of trying to inspire Indians to rebel against the British. So This is the Ghadar movement, right? Yeah. So they were, you know, that they factor into this, a portion of the book. Another portion is the group of South Asian men who um, enlisted in the U.S. Army and fought in World War I, actually went over to Europe. And uh, it, apart from the great numbers of South Asians who fought for the British on the continent, um, these were folks that went over as, U- as U.S. soldiers. Mm. So that factors into a portion of the book. And then the thing that really pulled me into the story initially and what I thought the book was going to be about when I first started writing was a love story between a Mexican woman and a uh, Punjabi man and the tensions that this particular person might feel because he had left a, a wife at home and had a son mm. that he had and felt the pull of going back home and yet was falling in love with this woman, you know, much against his own better interest in what he right. wanted himself. So that there is a component. There are two love stories there that both of these men um, that I focus on, who are two friends, Ram, who is about 21 years old, and Karak, who's about 31 years old at the start of the book. They meet in Hong Kong waiting for a steamship to carry them to San Francisco when they first arrive. And it's the story of their friendship and the tensions between them. They're more frenemies than friends. <laughs> and um, and how they diverge in, in their life stories, uh, but how they remain friends for more than 50 years. The opening scene of the book is when Karak dies as an elderly man and um, Ram is standing vigil in his hospital room. You mentioned the love stories as sort of a starting point for you in a lot of ways and where you thought the, the book was going to go. And you mentioned earlier that there there was a large population of people in the United States with South Asian fathers and uh, Mexican mothers. Can you talk about what you learned over the course of researching this book about the way those relationships develop? It's, um, it's interesting. I mean, all I have is a few life stories, so I, could, I couldn't possibly speak for an entire uh, demographic, especially one that I'm not sure. part of. But there's been sociological studies um, done of this very unique group. Um, the first one that comes to mind, and that was a great help for me in, when I started out my research, and which I returned to over and over again, was the book Making Ethnic Choices by K- Karen Isaacson Leonard. Mm. And she uh, is faculty out of UC Davis. Um, so they were, And there are several other sociological studies that were done to their stranger intimacy by Nayan Shah of the first Punjabis who were here. That And there's a beautiful film called Roots in the Sand by J.S. Hart, which showed on PBS a few years ago. So these all, these all convey different aspects of the experience of these families. But, you know, by, by and large, these folks that lived in the Imperial Valley were a very unique community. And from what I could uh, gather from some of these interviews, many of the individuals who grew up in these families felt like that they didn't belong to either the Mexican 
immigrant community that lived there. And then a lot of the Punjabi heritage was lost because after their fathers arrived, there were no other, for you know, two and a half decades, very, very few uh, Punjabi immigrants were allowed in and they didn't have a tie to the paternal side of their extended family. So the maternal ties were very close um, and they grew up speaking Spanish. Some of them grew, some of them did know Punjabi, especially when they were younger and if they worked out in the fields with their father and their father's um, brothers or, you know, the, the men they knew as uncles. Um, but by and large, they were a pretty unique community and um, looked to each other for a lot of their social life um, and knew each other very well, I think. And um, I, the photos of them and the stories they tell are very moving about that type of growing up. That experience you described of feeling like they're not part of either culture, that's something that Ram articulates at many points or is articulated sort of th- through his perspective in the book at many points. Um, that experience of being sort of torn between two worlds, two cultures, and two identities. And at, at one point you described him as forever suspended between two lands, never whole. That line made me think a lot of W. W. E. B. Dubois and the the concept he has of double consciousness. The idea that Black Americans must be both Black and American, and that those identities are always in conflict. Is that something you were thinking of explicitly, is or was it something that sort of is just a fairly universal experience and and sort of comes through in that way? It's um, interesting that you choose Dubois words because there was a lot of interaction between Dubois and some of the South Asian intellectuals who were in the country at the time. And a lot of the philosophy that the Gather Party uh, put together that had to do with themselves as Indian South Asian subjects in the British Commonwealth drew parallels between uh, the institution of slavery and the way that it was implemented around the world. So there was a lot of fellow feeling among the South Asian intellectuals at that time and what had happened with slavery in the decades before. And then also the idea of being suspended between two worlds. I think many immigrants feel that. I certainly felt that for a very, very long time in my life, especially in my teens and and 20s that you know, I had a very different uh, life at home with parents and family and then a very different life with mainstream American friends and how are these two ever going to converge and become one person. You know, that has changed as life has gone on and, you know, some of my uh, Indian relatives have moved to the U.S. or people have aged and, you know, I don't, I no longer have grandparents that live in in India anymore, and I've had my own children. They're being raised in the U.S., and then there's a. They tend to replicate mm. my experience here. You know, we now have a cultural similarity. My children and I have, which my parents and I didn't have. Right. So that shifts as a person becomes more and more a part of the society in which they live. But I think all immigrants must experience that at some level of being suspended between two different worlds. Although Passage West takes place over 100 years ago, the experiences of racism and anti-immigrant sentiment that it describes are, as you sort of alluded to before, very relevant right now. We have a a president who regularly uses xenophobic rhetoric, clearly has um, an agenda around immigration. Were you thinking about the parallels as you were writing this novel? Yeah, I mean, I started writing the novel, researching it 12 years ago, so it was long before... Um, any of this had happened. 
you know, I turned my attention to the topic soon after uh, Karma and Other Stories was published in 2007. And I was really focused on um, the love story aspect then. I hadn't really been able to solidify the angle in which I was going to push out the, the final novel in its polished form. After the 2016 election, I suddenly realized, I mean, I personally had so much to say about it. And then I realized, oh my gosh, I have this novel and it is the perfect vehicle. The material I have here, the research that I've done is the perfect vehicle in which I could say what I need to say about this stuff that was going on in the country at the time and still continues on today and becomes more and more egregious as we as we watch. So the novel really took solid shape after the 2016 election and had a certain perspective that was much more tangible to me than it did before. Was that a difficult experience for you to write about these these very charged events that, as you said, had a lot of personal resonance? It was a it was a relief to me, Clara, mm. to be able to write about it. It was a great relief because um, I felt very much like, what can I do uh, given what's happening now and my own life experience? I found that okay, at least I can write about these individuals and what they contributed to America and show the lie in some of what was coming out over the TV and the, and the tweets and, you know, everything else that um, how much the South Asians and Mexicans and Japanese contributed to American society and how much, you know, some of what we saw on Charlottesville and the, and the rest was not true. So it was, it was a relief to me to have the ability to say it through the novel. The history of Punjabi immigrants in America is extremely rich, and the impact that those immigrants had on American culture, agriculture, and food production, as we mentioned, is I think it's fair to say that it's far more significant than at least most white Americans realize. But also, it was pretty clear in your novel and in the sort of research that I did around it that it is because of that impact that they and other Asian American immigrants were targeted by both individuals and institutions. How familiar were you with that history going into this novel, and how much did you learn coming out of sort of researching for the novel itself? I knew almost none of that history before I went into it. And then when I started reading some of the sociological works, as well as some of the newspaper articles that were uh, contemporaneous with the Times, like coming out of the Brawley News or the Imperial Valley Press, the precursor to that paper, um, I realized, like, especially amongst the Japanese, how they excelled in farming and put together new techniques in terms of uh, raising cantaloupe and different breeds of lettuce. Um, and then also how the South Asians excelled in cotton production. So all of these, you know, the attention to this group from mainstream society grew more and more as, they, as the Im recent immigrants became more successful and were showing their success, you know, whether it meant in big houses or in nice cars or anything else. So that was all very new to me. Perhaps I was naive when I started out the research that it was such a, it seemed very cynical to me, you know, the reaction, the legal reaction of society to the success of these groups. Well, this is a work of fiction, as we've talked about. There's a number of real people and events woven into it. You mentioned uh, thinned earlier, and there is a moment in the book when Amarjeet, one of the sort of four main characters, develops an epistolary friendship with him. 
How did you decide which people and events to highlight and how did you approach weaving them into the story that you were telling? It was really difficult. The (laughs) hardest part of the book was to was to edit things down. I, I mean, I had a history of uh, the wife that was uh, Kishin, who was uh, in the book as well, and I had to knock that out because then I just realized if what I was going to focus on was the, the political events around Guthrie and the British, and uh, if I was going to focus on World War One, and then around um, these Mexican Punjabi families, I needed to winnow it down to the four characters who would represent that. So that's what is sort of representative in those four men that you just talked about. And then within them, the friendship between Ram and Karik is primary. So um, I really had to knock things out and consolidate characters. <laughs> you know, and even then it was, you know, it was it was lengthy. So it was a hard exercise to uh, decide what I was going to write about and then just have those representative characters on the page. Appreciate jazz? Then tune into Jazz Tracks every Thursday evening from 7 till 10 at 90.7 FM, KSQD, Santa Cruz. On the second Thursday of each month, join Bill Van Bloom and Noreen Nolan for a variety of melodic jazz from classics and standards through bossa nova and contemporary, as well as live recordings from local area jazz bands. Enjoy the richness of jazz right here on K-Squid, 90.7 on your FM dial, and on the web at ksqd.org. If you're just joining me, my guest today is author Rishi Reddy, whose debut novel, Passage West, tells the story of a Punjabi immigrant who moves to California in the 19-teens. So I'm going to ask you now to read an excerpt from the book, and before you do, please set it up for us. Tell us what we're going to hear. This is about the first time that Ram um, and Karak, the two friends that the book is focused on, walk some land together in the Imperial Valley. And the land was recently irrigated through surface irrigation. It was uh, It's desert farmland that's fed through uh, a number of canals from the Colorado River. It goes back to the beginning of their lives together when they first decide to farm. So um, a couple of words that might need some explanation. I often, they're talking in Punjabi. I'm trying to render that conversation in English. No easy task. So they often use the word bai, which means brother. So you'll hear that. And the land is owned by a recent Swiss immigrant named Egenberger. And they are trying to, Karik is trying to enter into a lease agreement, a share cropping type of agreement with him. This is the first time they're looking at this field that Karak is showing Ram and trying to convince him to go into business with him. So, they stood at the corner of an alfalfa field that lay in neat strips of vibrant green and dirt brown. On one side lay the road they had just traveled, on the other sand and scrub that stretched uninterrupted to the west. Gazing out at the horizon, the endless sky, the white slivers of cloud above Mount Signal, Ram forgot about his unsettled stomach. He had seen this moment before, felt this heat before, smelled the sandy loam and dust wind since he was a child. For a moment, the sky spun above him, but it was not only dizziness that he felt. If he looked past Karak Sastar, past his sparse cluster of trees, he could see his uncle's farm near the edge of the lower Chanab Canal. Water running from Himalayan snow and Shivalik rains, thundering, tremendous, toward the Indus River and the Arabian Sea. At the southeast corner of his uncle's land stood this same mesquite tree that sheltered tired travelers. 
The village women would send them water in tin cups, rotis and choles served on leaves. On the far side, in blessed privacy, stood the hut where he and Padma spend their nights. A gust of wind lifted sand into Ram's eyes. His vision skewed. He saw a single point of light surrounded by darkness. The most important thing is land by, Karak said to him. We must only level it and plant. Come and work with me. We will grow cotton. Everyone says there'll be war in Europe soon. The cotton market will be high. We Punjabis know how to grow it. You will have too much, Ram. Too much money to send home. You will have to spend some of it here just for entertainment. At home, everyone will be celebrating your name and honoring you. Ram felt a constriction in his chest. I want to go home in two years, by, he said. That is my only wish. Two years, three years, whatever you wish, the arrangement would be the same as Jeevan's. Egenberger gets one-third profit. I will take half the crop. The rest is yours. You take half the crop? Ram was not sure that he heard correctly. Well, I pay for the rental of mules and equipment. That is fair. You would get the remainder by, Karak said, turning toward Ram. I said it already, didn't I? Far more than two dollars a day. Ram's cheeks grew hot. He stared at the outline of the far hills, trying to swallow the anger. Half? He had come to Karak seeking refuge, wanting to confide what had happened in Hamilton. He had hoped the man would lend him money for passage home. Even without knowing all that, Karak was betraying him. So after this excerpt, Ram grows angry and decides to leave the valley the next day in a huff. (laughs) And he goes to the, he's 21, you know, he goes to the train station without telling Karak. And the scene opens here. The train arrived with the screech of metal against metal. The passenger cars were almost empty. Ram boarded, put his things on the seat beside him and looked out the window. The car was searing hot. The train belched and groaned as the engine built up steam. The sound vibrated in his belly. In the safety of the train, for a moment, he felt calm. Karak had invited him to the valley as his guest, had offered work and partnership. No one in his uncle's home would have thought him worthy of such honor. He felt another flicker of regret. But Karak was not honoring him. How long had he been plotting? Forcing Ram to accept a lower profit? Was Ram not a man? Was he not worth more than that? Shouldn't he receive one-third of the profit? From the corner of his eye, Ram saw movement on the platform, the glimpse of a scarlet turban. Then the hand at his window knocking hard. Karak was speaking to him, but the sound was muffled by the train's breath, by the glass between them. Karak's face smiled at him, a crooked smile, a quick tilt of the head inviting him to come back out as if nothing had happened. At first, Ram felt a flash of satisfaction. Karak had come back for him. Karak's knuckles hit the window again, harder. Ram heard the man's voice inside his head. You take things too seriously. Such a naive boy. Ram turned to look. Karak was yelling. Ram did not know if he heard faint words or read his lips. Oye, come out. What are you doing in there? A vein appeared on the side of Karak's temple. He wasn't smiling now. The whistle blew like an alarm, blocking out all other sounds. Karak was still mouthing words. 
Ram Salkarik run to the ticket stand, talk briefly to the man, scribble on paper with a pen. The train nudged forward. Karik strode in long steps to the platform. The paper appeared in the window, slapped against the cloth. One third, one third, one third. Ram stood and gathered his blanket, his bag. Wheels clicked against metal track. He grasped the back of a bench to keep his balance. At the door, the dust wind caught his cheek. Wooden floorboards flashed past his foot. He jumped easily, landing at the western edge of the platform. Thank you. One of the things that I I find so interesting and compelling about that passage is that up until that moment, and you sort of hear it at the beginning when you were reading the part where Karak and Ram are talking, is Ram has no interest in staying in California before then. And money isn't even really a motivating factor for him in that choice. And yet something about seeing the land and having this conversation and going through this sort of dance with his friend or frenemy, as you put it, um, changes his mind. Can you talk about that? Something about going through, uh, out, going out to the land and taking a look at it and seeing it, I think in many of the men that I heard about that had lived that experience searched for similarities um, in the landscape with the land that they had come from in Punjab. And then, you know, they were excellent farmers. So when they hear they had an opportunity to develop a lot of land, whereas in Punjab they were restricted by the plot sizes and by what was being handed down uh, to many sons from one father, you know, as as plots became smaller and smaller. And then there's trouble with famine Um, There was trouble with British taxation. The opportunity, I think, was too good to pass up to go out and look at land and to feel like, wow, all of this is something that I could grow and develop. Ram, throughout the book, is torn by his ambition on one side and his love of his wife and feeling for his son that he's never met on the other. And uh, he is a very reluctant immigrant as opposed to Karak, who has jumped in, believes in the American dream, and is going to stay here and settle, and feels he has nothing to go back to and never plans to. Well, and it's interesting, you mentioned that Ram and Karak are very different in their orientation toward immigration, and that is true of all four of the sort of main men who make up the heart of this story. And it's, it's very compelling. Each develops his own separate understanding of what it means to be an immigrant, to be an Indian in America, and each develops his own separate racial consciousness over the course of the time period in the book. Can you describe what their different perspectives are, and what is it that you wanted to convey through those differences? Yeah, so I wanted to, so certainly there's an age difference between Jeevan, who is in his early 50s at the start of his book, and his wife, who is a few years younger than him. And his wife is actually, after she comes to the U.S., very happy to be here. Um, and for him, he's he is fleeing a sadness from the death of his son, who died when he was serving the British. He was in the British Army uh, in China. So when he comes over, he just wants to live a, a life that's as much free of conflict as possible. Mm. And 
He is very well connected with other South Asians all over the valley and all over California and the Pacific coast. Um, but he's also very well liked and respected by the Anglo community in the valley. And he had been there since the great flood, since the Colorado River had breached the dam and flooded the Salton Sea. And he had helped clean up the valley towns during that time and made a lot of friends in the Anglo community, was very respected by, you know, bankers, the sheriff, everyone else. And he prizes those relationships. And he will at times sacrifice perhaps some of his own pride in order to keep those friendships alive. And then there's Karak, who's a rash, brash, and uh, very much as soon as he has a little bit of money, courts a Mexican woman and settle. And then there's Ram, who wants to go back home as quickly as he can after he makes a profit and has something to take back to his uncle. They live in a combined family and for various reasons owes him some money and you know wants to pay that back. And then um, Amarjeet, who comes over as a teenager at, at right. the age of 15, and he wants to become as American as he possibly can. And so that's what motivates him to join the U.S. Army. And he wants to be like his high school classmates as much as he can. Yeah, what did you want to convey through providing all these different perspectives? Well, I wanted to convey that the immigrant experience is so vast. I mean, no, you know, there's no one immigrant experience and everybody who comes to the U.S. comes with all their own hopes and dreams. And um, some people don't want to stay. Some people don't like it. And that's also, you know, part of the entire package. I also wanted to convey a lot of the characters that I've depicted have come with their own feelings of racism and classism. And I wanted to show that and show the development of that through these different characters. And in that, Claire, I wanted to, I hope, inspire some conversation that wasn't always so much around figure pointing and labeling of somebody as a racist or a non-racist or woke or whatever you know language you want to use around it. I wanted to show that this is a continuum. It's very nuanced. And even folks that may be disadvantaged through a racist institutional structure are also experiencing those feelings inside themselves. So how are we as a society going to start dealing with these issues? It needs a more thoughtful, more profound and nuanced approach. And that's what the conversation that I was hoping to inspire by showing these four different characters and how, uh, you know, they're, they're each dealing with the society and they live in. Well, and one of the things that I think you do really well in this book is to show, to sort of reveal the motivations and uh, incentives almost for racist behavior and racist policies at the time period. Can you speak about that a little bit? You know, one of the center um, dramatic arcs in the book is about a friendship between Karak and his Anglo friend, Clive. And you know, these guys, these two men, they go out and party together. They have a lot in common personality-wise, and they enjoy each other's company. But actually, you know, by the end of the book, I think we see that it's really because of the racist structure of society, and then even more so because of certain laws that are enacted and the way that these two men are going to live their lives under those laws, that the friendship can't really flower. You know, it can't go anywhere, even though they feel a great affinity for each other. So I wanted to show that too. And, you know, is there a weakness in both of these men's, in both of these men? Definitely. You know, are there other ways they could have acted? Definitely. But, you know, what have we done that has actually prevented the friendship? There's something, you know, that society has done that prevents 
a friendship that would have existed. So yeah, I wanted to show that as well. Despite all the differences in their experiences and their perspectives on the events that are that they are sort of living through in their lives, there's also a sort of common thread that runs through the experience of all four men as well. And the thing that really struck me is this sense of shame that they experience in the face of racist slights, whatever their size, whatever their scope, and the way that shame prevents them from talking about those experiences, even with each other or leaning on each other to process them. Can you tell me about that? Well, I think I was trying to give voice there to some of what I had felt growing up and what I have, you know, that I've known of family members who've expressed similar thoughts to me or close friends who come from uh, immigrant communities have expressed to me that there is a certain shame, you know, instead of feeling like, instead of feeling a sense of pride in, in, in the context of racist behavior that's targeted at them, they actually feel a sense of shame. And I wanted to show that um, the way in which we assimilate how people think of us and um, the way that it becomes part of us, even though we may still have a sense of pride in terms of who we are and where we came from, um, it's unconscious and uh, it happens despite ourselves. One of the sort of early moments that you see, it, it involves um, Ram, Karak, and Clive, as you mentioned. There's a, a fourth man who comes into a bar and makes fun of Karak for... It's sort of a food-based shaming. He talks about buttermilk. I thought that was sort of a really interesting and revealing experience because it is, as you said, it's one of those first moments where Karak sees that Clive cannot be fully his friend. You know, that was a very difficult scene to write for me um, because what I was trying to depict there is that if Clive had to choose between his Anglo friend who he walked into the bar with and his Punjabi friend who he actually likes quite a bit and would rather hang out with, he's going to choose the Anglo friend because of the way society is structured and what he would lose himself if he stood up for uh, his Punjabi friend. So... It was very difficult to write. I thought, for me, it was a painful scene to see Clive leave the table uh, with with the Anglo friend who had just insulted Karak. But but I feel that there's a truth there that I was trying to convey, and I hope I conveyed it with a sense of sympathy towards Clive because I certainly feel that, even though <laughs> you know my experience is more with Karak that I, I feel Karak's anger there and I can feel uh, Clive's lack of strength of character there in being able to do the other thing. The tagline of Passage West is, who is welcome in America? How would you answer that question? Well, there's a part of America in which everybody is welcome in America. And then there's a part of America in which, you know, very, very small uh, group are welcome and look a little more like what we consider to be representatives of mainstream culture. And America's always had those two groups from its inception to now. And part of America is that we have those two groups, one in which everyone is welcome and another in which a very small group is welcome. Hi, this is Nikki Silva of the Kitchen Sisters. Join us every Tuesday at 3 p.m. for a mix of stories, interviews, sound portraits, and unexpected audio works from hidden kitchens, the hidden world of girls, lost and found sound, and local history and voices. 
Every other week, the Kitchen Sisters presents PRX Remix, a veritable mixtape of works by independent audio producers around the world. Tune in for the Kitchen Sisters. Davia Nelson and I are extremely happy and proud to be part of our new community radio station, KSQD Santa Cruz. Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! Tune in to our award-winning morning news program right here during primetime, 8 o'clock weekday mornings, right here on K-Squid, on KSQD. Our independent news program offers diverse perspectives, unique opinions unheard in the mainstream media, live as the news unfolds. Tune in for Democracy Now!, The War and Peace Report, weekday mornings at 8, right here on KSQD Community Radio, 90.7 FM. If you're just joining me, my guest today is author Rishi Reddy, whose debut novel, Passage West, tells the story of a Punjabi immigrant who moves to California in the 19-teens. We talked earlier about the sort of resonance of these events in the present day. How much do you think has changed and how much do you think is the same as it was then? It's changed in terms of we don't have um, as many of the really explicit laws uh, that allow such uh, distinctions around race to take place. I mean, we have the Jim Crow laws, of course, that have disappeared, but the effect of Jim Crow has not um, in, in terms of, of uh, black-white racial char- characterizations. But then, you know, even in terms of immigrant, we don't have the alien land laws anymore. We don't have the same type of explicit immigrant quotas, although what we're heading towards now is something very similar. Um, and, and becoming more and more explicit as time goes on. So it just feels to me a little bit of like, this is the same organism, it's the same creature that is moving organically through the ages. And which particular shift are we in now is, is the way to, that I sometimes think of it. So you mentioned that this book, you started writing this book 12 years ago, pretty much right after you finished working on, or right after you published Carmen and Other Stories. Can you talk about a little bit about that process? I mean, you mentioned that for eight years it was sort of a love story and then it changed after the 2016 election. What were the other pieces that went into the sort of editing process and how did it evolve over the course of those 12 years? You know, I had a huge section, as I was saying, about um, Kishan and who's the wife of Jeevan, the older couple. Um, and her past in India, I had to edit that whole section out. Um, I had a lot more about World War One, and had it actually, the setting of it was in Europe. I decided to edit that out and keep it only in the Imperial Valley because I felt it would be a more powerful story if it was situated only in the Imperial Valley. And then there were huge chunks, Claire, that I wrote about Ram's wife in India and their marriage and what their life together was like, all of that. Also, I edited it out. It informs the rest of the book and Padma's loss uh, of her husband and a life with him uh, is certainly what I was heading towards, which appears in the epilogue and, you know, I feel encompasses the whole book. I mean, she's the one who suffered the most out of the experience in my, you know, in the way that I look at it. But it was a slow over the course of those 12 years, gathering all of this information and then sort of cutting it, slicing it away to focus just on the valley and to focus just on this sort of pieced together family in the valley um, and their experiences. So you, you have written a number of short stories as well. And you have mentioned that your legal work always plays into your writing to some extent. 
Is your other work as heavily researched as this novel is, or is it sort of a mix of intuitive writing? It's not as heavily researched at all, and I can't wait to get back to that kind of writing. <laughs> <laughs> because there was so much more freedom, I felt, in uh, writing about the present day and about much more personal experience than I felt in this book. Writing a historical novel, I felt really trapped by uh, the tyranny of truth, you know, Mm. things that had actually happened that I felt like I had to be aligned with and then I couldn't change. And then I felt like I had to know more about every specific incident that happened to make sure that, oh my gosh, could that have really happened? You know, and found myself going back over and over again. So I felt a little bit in jail writing, writing the book. And even as vast as it is, and even with how much material it covers, I felt a little bit restricted and in jail. And I can't wait to return to the writing where I'm just talking about, you know, something that has happened in the day and age that I know really well in my world, in in the language that I speak all the time and not having to make that additional translation from the past to to the present day. What would you say is the most surprising thing you learned in doing the research for this novel? How many immigrant groups mattered in the makeup of California in those days and how they all interacted and how America really, I felt in the end, America is really about the space between these groups, you know, how they negotiated with each other, how society formed while it encompassed all of these groups. That seemed to me to be a fantastic thing where alliances could happen and uh, how they got to know each other. The friendship between the Japanese woman next door and um, mm-hmm. Kish, you know, the, pen, the, the from the Punjabi family, you know, how those came about. And I was surprised myself when I found every single time that I found a parallel from 110 years ago. That's something that had happened in my life and the way that my family had grown up here. You know, that that it was the same type of thing that these immigrant groups were befriending each other and the relationship with mainstream society and how those friendships developed. So the parallels are what really, really surprised me. What resonated with you most in your own life? I think Amarjeet's journey from being a little embarrassed about himself, really wanting to fit in with his American high school classmates. And then finally deciding, like, this is who I am, and I'm still going to find the American friends while being this person that I am. And then he is, you know, he becomes politicized. He becomes somebody who's really talking about the place of Punjabi men in American society. And I feel like, you know, I went through a similar evolution as I grew older. There was a a line that I'm trying to find of Amarjeet's that I, that I personally found quite resonant. And and it's sort of in in exactly that journey that you're talking about, right? He spent most of his life, he sort of saw the way that racism impacted his family, but I don't know if he felt like he didn't experience very much of it, or if it was just that he, he did so desperately want to belong but he sort of rejects a lot of his his family's attempts to to shelter him or to sort of teach him about these things. And there's a moment when he is writing his uncle from army training camp and he writes, you were right, Chataji, there's, there's still race prejudice, but I don't think it is of real consequence. And then later comes to realize that 
it it actually is a fairly significant consequence. He says, there are two Americas, I know this now. And it really is, I think, reflective of his journey and of that uh, politicization that you mentioned, that he can go from this is of no real consequence to there are two Americas. I just think it showed a greater understanding about his role in the world. You know, I liked Amarjeet a lot better by the end of the book. <laughs> I liked him at the beginning. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, if there's one thing that readers take away from this novel, what do you hope that is? The things are complicated. <laughs> <laughs> and that I hope that, uh, like I said before, that I hope that they'll be inspired to do some reflecting on their own on their own place in some of these issues and to be forgiving of others um, as much as they can be and just so that we can have the conversation and, and start some real work on these racist uh, issues in the U.S. What's next for you? What are you working on now? I have um, a couple of ideas. One is some work on climate change and some fiction around that, and um, the, which is actually an area that I'm working on in my environmental life. And uh, another is, of course, you'll laugh, given that I just said that I felt like I was in jail writing historical work. But while I was researching this book, I was really taken by so much material I read about the women's um, movement, the Votes for Women's movement. And uh, I'm, I'm thinking about taking up something along those lines. My daughter is 14, and she's very interested in the topic, and I'm sure that is influencing me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Rishi Reddy, thank you so much for joining me today. It was a real pleasure, Clara. Thank you. To learn more about Rishi or to order a copy of her book, visit rishireddy.com. Catch Story Behind the Story on the first Friday of every month from 5 to 6 p.m. during the second hour of Talk of the Bay, right here on KSQD 90.7 FM. To share your thoughts on this or other shows, drop me a line at clara at ksqd.org. Next month, I will be talking to Canadian poet Jillian Christmas about her new poetry collection, The Gospel of Breaking. The Story Behind the Story is produced for KSQD 90.7 FM by me, Clara Shirley Appel. Our sound engineer is Lanier Sammons. He also wrote our theme.